Book Three, Chapter Twenty Nine of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Book Three, The Girl in Gray. Chapter Twenty Nine. Amelia becomes peremptory. Madam, I hope I see you satisfied. This was Mr. Grice's greeting as he entered my parlor on that memorable morning. Satisfied, I repeated, rising and facing him with what he afterwards described as a stony glare. Pardon me, I suppose you would have been still more satisfied if we had waited for you to point out the guilty man to us. But you must make some allowances for professional egotism, Miss Butterworth. We really could not allow you to take that initiatory step in a matter of such importance. Oh, was my slow response, but he has since told me that there was a great deal in that oh, so much that even he was startled by it. You set today for a talk with me, he went on, probably relying upon what you intended to assure yourself of yesterday. But our discovery at the same time as yourself of the rings in Mr. Van Burnham's office need not interfere with your giving us your full confidence. The work you have done has been excellent, and we are disposed to give you considerable credit for it. Indeed. I had no choice but to thus indulge in ejaculations. The communication he had just made was so startling, and his assumption of my complete understanding of and participation in the discovery he professed to have made so puzzling that i dared not venture beyond these simple exclamations lest he should see the state of mind into which he had thrown me and shut up like an oyster we have kept counsel over what we have found the wary old detective continued with a smile which i wish i could imitate but which unhappily belongs to him alone I hope that you, or your maid, I should say, have been equally discreet. My maid? I see you are touched, but women find it so hard to keep a secret. But it does not matter. Tonight the whole town will know that the older and not the younger brother has had these rings in his keeping. It will be nuts for the papers, I commented. Then, making an effort, I remarked, You are a most judicious man, Mr. Grice, and must have other reasons than the discovery of these rings for your threatened arrest of a man of such excellent repute as Silas Van Burnham's eldest son. I should like to hear them, Mr. Grice. I should like to hear them very much. My attempt to seem at ease under these embarrassing conditions must have given a certain sharpness to my tone for instead of replying he remarked with well-simulated concern and a fatherly humoring of my folly peculiarly exasperating to one of my temperament you are displeased miss butterworth because we did not let you find the rings perhaps but we were engaged in an open field i could not expect the police to stand aside for me exactly especially when you have the secret satisfaction of having put the police on the track of these jewels. How? We were simply fortunate in laying our hands on them first. You, or rather your maid, showed us where to look for them. Lena, again. 
I was so dumbfounded by this last assertion I did not attempt to reply. Fortunately, he misinterpreted my silence and the stony glare with which it was accompanied. I know that it must seem to you altogether too bad to be tripped up at the moment of your anticipated triumph. But if apologies will suffice to express our sense of presumption, then I pray you to accept them, Miss Butterworth, both on my own part and on that of the superintendent of police. I did not understand in the least what he was talking about, but I recognized the sarcasm of his final expression, and had spirit enough to reply. The subject is too important for any more nonsense. Whereabouts in Franklin Van Burnham's desk were these rings found, and how do you know that his brother did not put them there? Your ignorance is refreshing, Miss Butterworth. If you will ask a certain young girl dressed in grey, upon what object connected with Mr. Van Burnham's desk she laid her hands yesterday morning, you will have an answer to your first question. The second one is still more easily answered. Mr. Howard Van Burnham did not conceal the rings in the Duane Street office for the reason that he has not been in that office since his wife was killed. Regarding this fact, we are as well advised as yourself. Now you change color, Miss Butterworth, but there is no necessity. For an amateur you have made less trouble and fewer mistakes than were to be expected. Worse and worse, he was patronizing me now, and for results I had done nothing to bring about. I surveyed him in absolute amazement. Was he amusing himself with me, or was he himself deceived as to the nature and trend of my late investigations? This was a question to settle, and at once, and as duplicity had hitherto proved my best weapon in dealing with Mr. Grice, I concluded to resort to it in this emergency. Clearing my brow, I regarded with a more amenable air the little Hungarian vase he had taken up on entering the room, and into which he had been talking ever since he thought it worth while to compliment its owner. I do not wish, said I, to be published to the world as the discoverer of Franklin Van Burnham's guilt. But I do want credit with the police, if only because one of their number has chosen to look upon my efforts with disdain. I mean you, Mr. Grice. So, if you are in earnest, he smiled at the vase most genially, I will accept your apologies just so far as you honor me with your confidence. I know you are anxious to hear what evidence I have collected, or you would not be wasting time on me this busy morning. Shrewd was the short ejaculation he shot into the mouth of the vase he was handling. If that term of admiration is intended for me, I remarked, I am sure I am only too sensible of the honor. But flattery has never succeeded in making me talk against my better judgment. I may be shrewd, but a fool could see what you are after this morning. Compliment me when I have deserved it. I can wait. I begin to think that what you withhold so resolutely has more than common value, Miss Butterworth. If this is so, I must not be the only one to listen to your explanations. Is not that a carriage I hear stopping? I am expecting Inspector Z. If that is he, you have been wise to delay your communications till he came. A carriage was stopping. 
and it was the inspector who alighted from it. I began to feel my importance in a way that was truly gratifying, and cast my eyes up at the portrait of my father, with a secret longing that its original stood by to witness the verification of his prophecy. But I was not so distracted by these thoughts as not to make one attempt to get something from Mr. Grice before the inspector joined us. Why do you speak to me of my maid in one breath and of a girl in grey in another? Did you think, Lena? Hush, he enjoined. We will have ample opportunities to discuss this subject later. Will we, thought I, we will discuss nothing till I know more positively what you are aiming at. But I showed nothing of this determination in my face. On the contrary, I became all affability as the inspector entered, and I did the honors of the house in a way I hope my father would have approved of, had he been alive and present. Mr. Grice continued to stare into the vase. Miss Butterworth, it was the inspector who was speaking, I have been told that you take great interest in the Van Burnham murder, and that you have even gone so far as to collect some facts in connection with it, which you have not as yet given to the police. You have heard correctly, I returned. I have taken a deep interest in this tragedy, and have come into possession of some facts in reference to it, which as yet I have imparted to no living soul. Mr. Grice's interest in my poor little vase increased marvelously. Seeing this, I complacently continued, I could not have accomplished so much had I indulged in a confidant. Such work as I have attempted depends for its success upon the secrecy with which it is carried on. That is why amateur work is sometimes more effective than professional. No one suspected me of making inquiries, unless it was this gentleman, and he was forewarned of my possible interference. I told him that in case Mr. Howard Van Burnham was put under arrest, I should take it upon myself to stir up matters, and I have. Then you do not believe in Mr. Van Burnham's guilt, not even in his complicity, I suppose, ventured the inspector. I do not know anything about his complicity. "'but I do not believe the stroke given to his wife came from his hand.' "'I see, I see. You believe it the work of his brother.' "'I stole a look at Mr. Grice before replying. "'He had turned the vase upside down and was intently studying its label, "'but he could not conceal his expectation of an affirmative answer. "'Greatly relieved, I immediately took the position I had resolved upon "'and calmly but vigorously observed.' What I believe, and what I have learned in support of my belief, will sound as well in your ears ten minutes hence as now. Before I give you the result of such inquiries as I have been enabled to make, I require to know what evidence you have yourself collected against the gentleman you have just named, and in what respect it is as criminating as that against his brother. Is that not peremptory, Miss Butterworth? And do you think us called upon to part with all or any of the secrets of our office? We have informed you that we have new and startling evidence against the older brother. Should not that be sufficient for you? Perhaps so, if I were an assistant of yours, or even in your employ. But I am neither. I stand alone, and although I am a woman and unused to this business, I have earned, as I think you will acknowledge later, 
the right to some consideration on your part. I cannot present the facts I have to relate in a proper manner till I know just how the case stands. It is not curiosity that troubles Miss Butterworth, madam. I said it was not curiosity, but a laudable desire to have the whole matter arranged with precision, dropped now in his driest tones from the detective's lips. Mr. Grice has a most excellent understanding of my character, I gravely observed. The inspector looked nonplussed. He glanced at Mr. Grice, and he glanced at me, but the smile of the former was inscrutable, and my expression, if I showed any, must have betrayed but little relenting. If called as a witness, Miss Butterworth, this was how he sought to manage me. You will have no choice in the matter. You will be compelled to speak or show contempt of court. That is true, I acknowledged, but it is not what I might feel myself called upon to say then, but what I can say now that is of interest to you at this present moment. So, be generous, gentlemen, and satisfy my curiosity, for such Mr. Grice considers it, in spite of his assertions to the contrary. Will it not all come out in the papers, a few hours hence, and have I not earned as much at your hands as the reporters? The reporters are our bane. Do not liken yourself to the reporters. Yet they sometimes give you a valuable clue. Mr. Grice looked as if he would like to disclaim this, but he was a judicious soul, and merely gave a twist to the vase, which I thought would cost me that small article of vertu. "'Shall we humor Miss Butterworth?' asked the inspector. "'We will do better,' answered Mr. Grice, setting the vase down with a precision that made me jump, for I am a worshipper of bric-a-brac, and prize the few articles I own, possibly beyond their real value.' We will treat her as a coadjutor, which, by the way, she says she is not, and, by the trust we place in her, secure the discretionary use of our confidence, which she shows with so much spirit in regard to her own. Begin, then, said I. I will, said he, but first allow me to acknowledge that you are the person who first put us on the track of Franklin Van Burnham. End of chapter 29 Chapter 30 The Matter as Stated by Mr. Grice I had exhausted my wonder, so I accepted this statement with no more display of surprise than a grim smile. When you failed to identify Howard Van Burnham as the man who accompanied his wife into the adjacent house, I realized that I must look elsewhere for the murderer of Louise Van Burnham. You see, I had more confidence in the excellence of your memory than you had yourself, so much indeed that I gave you more than one chance to exercise it, having, by certain little methods I sometimes employ, induced different moods in Mr. Van Burnham at the time of his several visits, so that his bearing might vary, and you have every opportunity to recognize him for the man you had seen on that fatal night. Then it was he you brought here each time, I broke in. It was he. Well, I ejaculated. The superintendent and some others whom I need not mention, here Mr. Grice took up another small object from the table, believed implicitly in his guilt. Conjugal murder is so common, and the causes which lead to it so frequently puerile. Therefore I had to work alone, 
but this did not cause me any concern. Your doubts emphasized mine, and when you confided to me that you had seen a figure similar to the one we were trying to identify enter the adjoining house on the evening of the funeral, I made immediate inquiries and discovered that the gentleman who had entered the house, right after the four persons described by you, was Franklin Van Burnham. This gave me a definite clue, and this is why I say that it was you who gave me my first start in this matter. Huh, thought I to myself, as, with a sudden shock, I remembered that one of the words, which had fallen from Miss Oliver's lips during her delirium, had been this very name of Franklin. I had had my doubts of this gentleman before, continued the detective, warming gradually with his subject. A man of my experience doubts everyone in a case of this kind. And I had formed at odd times a sort of side theory, so to speak, into which some little matters which came up during the inquest seemed to fit with more or less nicety, but I had no real justification for suspicion till the event of which I speak. That you had evidently formed the same theory as myself, and were bound to enter into the lists with me, put me on my mettle, madam, and with your knowledge or without it the struggle between us began. So your disdain of me, I here put in with a triumphant air, I could not subdue, was only simulated. I shall know what to think of you hereafter. But don't stop. Go on. This is all deeply interesting to me. I can understand that. To proceed, then, my first duty, of course, was to watch you. You had reasons of your own for suspecting this man, so by watching you I hoped to surprise them. Good, I cried, unable to entirely conceal the astonishment and grim amusement into which his continued misconception of the trend of my suspicions threw me. But you led us a chase, madam, I must acknowledge that you led us a chase. Your being an amateur led me to anticipate your using amateurs' methods, but you showed skill, madam, and the man I sent to keep watch over Mrs. Boppert against your looked-for visit there was foiled by the very simple strategy you used in meeting her at a neighboring shop. Good, I cried again, in my relief that the discovery made at that meeting had not been shared by him. We had sounded Mrs. Boppert ourselves, but she had seemed a very hopeless job, and I do not yet see how you got any water out of that stone, if you did. No, I retorted ambiguously, enjoying the inspector's manifest delight in this scene, as much as I did my own secret thoughts and the prospect of the surprise I was holding in store for them. But your interference with the clock and the discovery you made that it had been going at the time the shelves fell was not unknown to us, and we have made use of it, good use, as you will hereafter see. So, those girls could not keep a secret after all, I muttered, and waited with some anxiety to hear him mention the pincushion. But he did not, greatly to my relief. Don't blame the girls, he put in. His ears evidently are as sharp as mine. The inquiries having proceeded from Franklin, it was only natural for me to suspect that he was trying to mislead us by some hocus-pocus story. So I visited the girls. That I had difficulty in getting to the root of the matter is to their credit, Miss Butterworth. 
seeing that you had made them promise secrecy. You are right, I nodded, and forgave them on the spot. If I could not withstand Mr. Grice's eloquence, and it affected me at times, how could I expect these girls to? Besides, they had not revealed the more important secret I had confided to them, and in consideration of this, I was ready to pardon them almost anything. That the clock was going at the time the shelves fell, and that he should be the one to draw our attention to it, would seem to the superficial mind proof positive that he was innocent of the deed with which it was so closely associated, the detective proceeded. But to one skilled in the subterfuges of criminals, this seemingly conclusive fact in his favor was capable of an explanation so in keeping with the subtlety shown in every other feature of this remarkable crime that I began to regard it as a point against him rather than in his favor, of which more hereafter. Not allowing myself to be deterred then by this momentary setback, and rejoicing in an affair considered as settled by my superiors, I proceeded to establish Franklin Van Burnham's connection with the crime, which had been laid with so much apparent reason at his brother's door. The first fact to be settled was, of course, whether your identification of him as the gentleman who accompanied his victim into Mr. Van Burnham's house could be corroborated by any of the many persons who had seen the so-called Mr. James Pope at the Hotel D. As none of the witnesses who attended the inquest had presumed to recognize in either of these sleek and haughty gentlemen the shrinking person just mentioned, I knew that any open attempt on my part to bring about an identification would result disastrously. So I employed strategy. Like my betters, Miss Butterworth, here his bow was overpowering in its mock humility. And rightly considering that for a person to be satisfactorily identified with another, he must be seen under the same circumstances and in nearly the same place, I sought out Franklin Van Burnham, and with specious promises of some great benefit to be done his brother, induced him to accompany me to the Hotel D. Whether he saw through my plans, and thought that a brave front and an assumption of candor would best serve him in this unexpected dilemma, or whether he felt so entrenched behind the precautions he had taken, as not to fear discovery under any circumstances, he made but one demur before preparing to accompany me. This demur was significant, however, for it was occasioned by my advice to change his dress for one less conspicuously fashionable, or to hide it under an ulster or mackintosh. And, as a proof of his hardihood, remember, madam, that his connection with this crime has been established, he actually did put on the ulster, though he must have known what a difference it would make in his appearance. The result was all I could desire. As we entered the hotel, I saw a certain hackman start and lean forward to look after him. It was the one who had driven Mr. and Mrs. Pope away from the hotel. And when we passed the porter, the wink which I gave him was met by a lift of his eyelids, which he afterwards interpreted into like very like. But it was from the clerk I received the most unequivocal proof of his identity. 
On entering the office, I had left Mr. Van Burnham as near as possible to the spot where Mr. Pope had stood while his so-called wife was inscribing their names in the register, and bidding him to remain in the background while I had a few words at the desk, all in his brother's interest, of course. I succeeded in secretly directing Mr. Henshaw's attention toward him. The start which he gave and the exclamation he uttered were unequivocal. "'Why, there's the man now!' he cried, happily in a whisper. Anxious look, drooping head, brown moustache, everything but the duster. "'Bah!' said I. "'That's Mr. Franklin Van Burnham you are looking at. What are you thinking of?' "'Can't help it,' said he. I saw both of the brothers at the inquest, and saw nothing in them then to remind me of our late mysterious guest. But as he stands there, he's a sight more like James Pope than the other one is, and don't you forget it. I shrugged my shoulders, told him he was a fool, and that fools had better keep their follies to themselves, and came away with my man, outwardly disgusted but inwardly in the most excellent trim for pursuing an investigation which had opened so auspiciously. Whether this man possessed any motive for a crime so seemingly out of accordance with his life and disposition was, of course, the next point to settle. His conduct at the inquest certainly showed no decided animosity towards his brother's wife, nor was there on the surface of affairs any token of the mortal hatred which alone could account for a crime at once so deliberate and so brutal. But we detectives plunge below the surface, and after settling the question of Franklin's identity with the so-called Mr. Pope of the Hotel D, I left New York and its interests, among which I reckoned your efforts at detective work, Miss Butterworth, to a young man in my office who I am afraid did not quite understand the persistence of your character for he had nothing to tell me concerning you on my return, save that you had been cultivating Miss Althorpe, which of course was such a natural thing for you to do. I wonder he thought it necessary to mention it. My destination was Four Corners, the place where Howard first met his future wife. In relating what I learned there, I shall doubtless repeat facts which you are acquainted with, Miss Butterworth. That is of no consequence, I returned, with almost brazen duplicity, for I not only was ignorant of what he was going to say, but had every reason to believe that it would bear as remote a connection as possible to the secret then laboring in my breast. A statement of the case from your lips, I pursued, will emphasize what I know. Do not stint any of your disclosures, then, I beg. I have an ear for all. This was truer than my rather sarcastic tone would convey, for might not his story after all prove to have some unexpected relation with the facts I had myself gathered together? It is a pleasure, said he, to think I am capable of giving any information to Miss Butterworth, and as I did not run across you or your very nimble and pert little maid during my stay at Four Corners, I shall take it for granted that you confined your inquiries to the city and the society of which you are such a shining light. This in reference to my double visit at Miss Althorpe's, no doubt. Four Corners is a charming little town in southern Vermont, and here, three years ago, Howard Van Burnham first met Miss Stapleton. 
She was living in a gentleman's family at the time, as traveling companion to his invalid daughter. Ah, now I could see what explanation this wary old detective gave himself of my visits to Miss Althorpe, and began to hug myself in anticipation of my coming triumph over him. The place did not fit her, for Miss Stapleton only shone in society of men. But Mr. Harrison had not yet discovered this special idiosyncrasy of hers, and as his daughter was able to see a few friends, and in fact needed some diversion, the way was open to her companion for that acquaintance with Mr. Van Burnham which had led to such disastrous results. The house at which their meeting took place was a private one, and I soon found out many facts not widely known in this city. First, that she was not so much in love with Howard as he was with her. He succumbed to her fascinations at once, and proposed, I believe, within two weeks after seeing her. But though she accepted him, few of those who saw them together thought her affections very much engaged, till Franklin suddenly appeared in town. When her whole manner underwent a change, and she became so sparklingly and irresistibly beautiful that her avowed lover became doubly enslaved. And Franklin, well, there is evidence to prove that he was not insensible to her charms either, that in spite of her engagement to his brother, and the attitude which honor bade him hold towards his prospective sister-in-law, he lost his head for a short time at least, and under her seductions I do not doubt, for she was a double-faced woman according to the general repute, went so far as to express his passion in a letter of which I heard much before I was so fortunate as to obtain a sight of it. This was three years ago, and I think Miss Stapleton would have been willing to have broken with Howard and married Franklin if the latter had had the courage to meet his brother's reproaches. But he evidently was deficient in this quality. His very letter, which is a warm one, but which holds out no hope to her, of any closer bond between them than that offered by her prospective union with his brother, shows that he still retained some sense of honor. And as he presently left Four Corners and did not appear again, where they were till just before their marriage, it is probable that all would have gone well if the woman had shared this sentiment with him. But she was made up of mean materials, and while willing to marry Howard for what he could give her, or what she thought he could give her, she yet cherished an implacable grudge against Franklin for his weakness, as she called it, in not following the dictates of his heart. Being sly as well as passionate, she hid her feelings from everyone, but a venial, though apparently devoted confidant, a young girl named Oliver, I finished in my own mind. But the name he mentioned was quite different. Pigot, he said, looking at the filigree basket he held in his hand, as if he picked this word out from one of its many interstices. She was French, and after once finding her I had but little difficulty in learning all she had to tell. She had been Miss Harrison's maid, but she was not above serving Miss Stapleton in many secret and dishonorable ways. As a consequence, she could give me the details of an interview which that lady had held with Mr. Franklin Van Burnham on the evening of her wedding. It took place in Mr. Harrison's garden, and was supposed to be a secret one. 
but the woman who arranged the meeting was not the person to keep away from it when it occurred, and consequently I have been enabled to learn with more or less accuracy what took place between them. It was not to Miss Stapleton's credit. Mr. Van Burnham merely wanted his letter back, but she refused to return it unless he would promise her a complete recognition by his family of her marriage and ensure her a reception in his father's house as Howard's wife. This was more than he could engage himself to perform. He had already, according to his own story, made every effort possible to influence the old gentleman in her favor, but had only succeeded in irritating him against himself. It was an acknowledgment which would have satisfied most women, but it did not satisfy her. She declared her intention of keeping the letter, for fear he would cease his exertions, and heedless of the effect produced upon him by the barefaced threat, proceeded to inveigh against his brother, for the very love which made her union with him possible. And as if this was not bad enough, showed at the same time such a disposition to profit by whatever worldly good the match promised, that Franklin lost all regard for her and began to hate her. As he made no effort to conceal his feelings, she must have become immediately aware of the change which had taken place in them. But however affected by this, she gave no sign of relenting in her purpose. On the contrary, she persisted in her determination to retain his letter and when he remonstrated with her and threatened to leave town before her marriage, she retorted by saying that if he did so, she would show his letter to his brother as soon as the minister had made them one. This threat seemed to affect Franklin deeply, and while it intensified his feeling of animosity towards her, subjected him for the moment to her whim. He stayed in four corners till the ceremony was performed, but was such a gloomy guest that all united in saying that he did the occasion no credit. So much for my work in four corners. I had by this time become aware that Mr. Grice was addressing himself chiefly to the inspector, being gratified no doubt at this opportunity of presenting his case at length before that gentleman. But true to his special habits, he looked at neither of us, but rather at the fretted basket, upon the handle of which he tapped out his arguments as he quickly proceeded. The young couple spent the first months of their married life in Yonkers, so to Yonkers I went next. There I learned that Franklin had visited the place twice, both times, as I judge, upon a peremptory summons from her. The result was mutual fret and heart-burning, for she had made no progress in her endeavors to win recognition from the Van Burnhams and even had had occasion to perceive that her husband's love, based as it was upon her physical attributes, had begun to feel the stress of her uneasiness and dissatisfaction. She became more anxious than ever for social recognition and distinction, and when the family went to Europe, consented to accompany her husband into the quiet retreat he thought best calculated to win the approbation of his father only upon the assurance of better times in the fall and a possible visit to Washington in the winter. But the quiet to which she was subjected had a bad effect upon her. Under it she grew more and more restless, and, as the time approached for the family's return, 
conceived so many plans for conciliating them that her husband could not restrain his disgust. But the worst plan of all, and the one which undoubtedly led to her death, he never knew. This was to surprise Franklin at his office, and, by renewed threat of showing this old love-letter to his brother, win an absolute promise from him to support her in a fresh endeavor to win his father's favor. You see, she did not understand Silas Van Burnham's real character, and persisted in holding the most extravagant views concerning Franklin's ascendancy over him, as well as over the rest of the family. She even went so far as to insist in the interview, which Jane Pigott overheard, that it was Franklin himself who stood in the way of her desires, and that if he chose, he could obtain for her an invitation to take up her abode with the rest of them in Gramercy Park. To Duane Street she therefore went before making her appearance at Mrs. Parker's, a fact which was not brought out at the inquest. Franklin not disclosing it, of course, and the clerk not recognizing her under the false name she chose to give. Of the details of this interview I am ignorant, but as she was closeted with him some time, it is only natural to suppose that conversation of some importance took place between them. The clerk who works in the outer office did not, as I have said, know who she was at the time, but he noticed her face when she came out, and he declares that it was insolent with triumph, while Mr. Franklin, who was polite enough, or calculating enough, to bow her out of the room, was pale with rage, and acted so unlike himself that everybody observed it. She held his letter in her hand, a letter easily distinguishable by the violet-colored seal on the back, and she filliped with it in a most aggravating way as she crossed the floor pretending to lay it down on Howard's desk as she went by, and then taking it up again with an arch look at Franklin, pretty enough to see, but hateful in its effect on him. As he went back to his own room his face was full of anger, and such was the effect of this visit on him that he declined to see anyone else that day. She had probably shown such determination to reveal his past perfidy to her husband that his fears were fully aroused at last, and he saw he was not only likely to lose his good name, but the esteem with which he was accustomed to being regarded by this younger and evidently much-loved brother. And now, considering his intense pride, as well as his affection for Howard, do you not see the motive which this seemingly good man had for putting his troublesome sister-in-law out of existence? He wanted that letter back, and to obtain it had to resort to crime. Or such is my present theory of this murder, Miss Butterworth. Does it correspond with yours? End of chapter 30